If you turn with me to the passage in which today's uh, gospel lesson is based, uh, it comes from First Chronicles chapter 29. It's also printed page 8 in your bulletins. And uh, I'll be reading. First Chronicles is written in retrospect, a retelling of the life of David. And uh, it's, it comes from a different vantage point in how it was written. And uh, I'll be reading from chapter 29, verses 1 through 20. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that wish you'd be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. 
O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the King. And this is God's word. Uh, This morning, we're going to begin a very short series on the importance of the temple. Temple theology. Now, it sounds very abstract, but it's actually very relevant uh, because of what the temple represented, what it meant to God's people in ancient times. And as a result, because it meant something so important to them in ancient times, it, it means just the same importance, the same relevance to us today. So we're going to begin today with David's plan to build the temple. At the end of David's life, David's life was chronicled his long history it's chronicled over several books in the bible in fact the only person who's been chronicled more than the life of david in the bible is jesus himself we're going to look at five very quick things today one what did david want two what did he give three why did he give it fourth how did people respond to that and lastly how can we respond that what did david want what did he give what was his motivation how did the people respond how do we respond five things first what did david want now if you read the whole book of uh, first chronicles really it's 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 the other account of david's life uh, first chronicles uh we see the passion and the purpose of david's life what was the passion and purpose of david's life and in this passage we see it's to get the presence of god into the people into Israel, for people, for his people to become close to God, for his people to be near to God. This is the glory of God, the heavenly presence of God, the heavenly beauty of God, the weight of the glory of God, the significance of the reality of God in people's lives. But there's a problem. All of this was lost. By this point in time, all of this was lost to Israel by the time David became king over Israel. Now, the ark, if you've studied in the Old Testament, the ark, this structure represented the presence of God. But for a long time, the ark remained in a very remote place, very remote place on the border of Israel, right, uh, throughout most or all of Saul's reign. It was practically a metaphor for Saul's relationship. Saul was the king of Israel before David, and it was a metaphor for Saul's relationship and his connection to God. God was kind of in a remote place in Saul's life. It was on the periphery of Saul's life, and as a result, was on the periphery of the entire country. And so David, I mean, why is that important? Because many of us, all of us here who are in the church, you got to be very careful Because for many of us, we can go to church, we can pray, we can study the Bible, we can be a part of community groups, we can be very integrated into serving in the church, and yet God himself, his presence, his glory, our relationship and connection to him could be very, very remote. God could be on the outskirts of all the things that actually matter in our lives. And so it's very important. Today we say, a lot of people say they believe in God, they obey the words of God, but something else actually grips our hearts. 
So God, like the ark, is on the periphery, in this remote place, the suburb of our lives. But David, he says, I want God to be downtown. I want God to be an essential part of my people's lives. Something else has gripped my people so that they look for significance and worth and joy and other things, and David wanted that to change. So what David did was he initially brought the ark. It was a long ordeal. We're going to go into that another time. But he wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem, literally downtown into the center of their lives. And as he did, as he brought the ark in, it was a long ordeal, a huge debacle in between, but he sang a song. There was a great procession, and he says, I want to have a relationship with God. I want to seek his face. I want to know the joy of being in the Lord. I'm going to bring God in. And that's what David wanted for his people here. The presence, the glory, the rule, the reign of God. Secondly, then, what did he give? Because bringing the ark didn't bring about the revival that David hoped for. It didn't bring about the revival that David wanted. And so what David says, while my people, while I live in this palace, my God is living in a tent, this this shabby tent. And so I'm going to build a temple, and I'm going to raise the money for it, and I'm going to consecrate the people. I'm going to endow the building of this temple. I'm going to build a house for God. That will make It will centralize the nation's efforts around the worship of God, intensify the knowledge of God. Literally, they will build into it, live into God's presence in their lives so that the people will turn to him. That's what he says. But in order to build something that large, that grand, you need money. So what does David do? The very beginning of this chapter we see, David, he's now very old. He's nearing death. He makes a speech. And basically what he says is, with all the resources that I've provided for the temple of my God, gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood. Then he talks about onyx and turquoise, stones of various colors, all kinds of fine stone and marble, all in large quantities, in devotion to the temple. Now I'm going to give my personal treasure, my personal treasury of gold and silver over and above everything that's been provided for. And he lists it. He takes an inventory of everything he has. 3,000 talents of gold. This is his 401k. David is going to fade away. He says, this is my life savings. 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of refined silver. Now, I'm giving it all. I'm giving it all for this building. I'm going I'm to use it to finance the building of the temple. I'm going to endow the work. Who's going to join me? Today, who is willing to consecrate themselves today for the Lord? You see, David was a king. And what a king does is he rules. A king is a master of administration. A king is just. A king thinks of the law and, and, and enforces the law on the people. But David was also a prophet. He was a teacher. He was a singer. He was a songwriter. He, he kept the law of God and ensured that the law would be kept. But here we see David. He's ever the priest. David is a priest. You see, because a temple wasn't just a place of ministry. 
The temple itself was the ministry. There, the teaching happened in the temple. There, worship happened in the temple. And David says, I, ever the priest, he says, I'm going to fund the work of the temple so that it will go on and on and on until, until God himself returns, essentially. And so the people there, the temple was a place of justice. People would come and there you would give money for the poor. That ministry happened in the temple. Justice and mercy happened in the temple. David says, I'm going to endow this work. I'm going to endow these efforts. He says, I'm going to take my bank account. I'm going to empty all of it. I'm going to take all, what is a treasury? A tre- your treasure. Back then in ancient times, a king, you know, uh, Caesar, when, when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is, what is Caesar's, he picks up the coin. Whose face is on the coin? It was Caesar's face. Why? Because every coin belonged to Caesar. It was his treasury. And David here, even far before that, he says, as a king, I have amassed a great treasure. This is my treasury, my 401k, my life savings, all of my accumulated wealth. I'm putting my dynasty on the line. I mean, if you give up all your money and there's a war, who's going to fund the war? If you give up all your money and put it into, this is his life investment. He says, I'm going to put it into the building of his temple. I'm going to risk war. I'm going to put my dynasty on the line. I'm going to put my monarchy, my monarchic dynastic line on the line. My kingship is at stake here. It's amazing. Now, to kind of put this in perspective, uh, one talent, if you read commentaries, scholars will tell you that one talent can could uh, be worth anywhere between one and ten years of a person's annual wages. So if you think about your annual wage right now, that's one talent, right? If you take the average U.S. annual income, average U.S. household income right now is $60,000. The average U.S. household income. The average U.S. annual income is around thirty dollars to $35,000. So if you take $35,000, right, what David was giving minimally roughly amounts to about $3.5 billion. $3.5 billion in cash. That's what he had. This is not a person who had $40 million, and he says, I'm going to tithe 10% to the building of this temple. This is a person who's got $3.5 billion. He empties it out, and he says, I'm going to give it all. He gave everything he had. I know, it's a lot. I know. This is, this is, he gave everything he had. This is going to be his life work. This is going to be his life purpose. He wanted to put his net worth, entire treasury, into this. Now keep in mind, right, we said that this is David sacrificing his monarchy. And the people, starting with the leaders, they were so astounded. Verse 6, they begin to give. And uh, remember, when you give like that, you can't do everything that you once had the freedom to do. You are purposefully limiting yourself. You are investing in something else. You know, a lot of us, what we do is we say, well, I have a certain amount of income. Every paycheck I receive, I'm going to take a certain portion, I put it away. I'm purposefully limiting myself today so that I can live better tomorrow. But that's not what David is doing. David is saying, I'm giving everything I have today, every paycheck that has come in, I'm giving it all up. When you do that, 
You can't only not do everything that you wanted to do. You can't do anything that you wanted to do. David says, I'm going to give like that. That's what I'm going to give. That's what he does. What was his motivation? And it comes out in his prayer in verse 14. Remember, kings in ancient times, they were considered divine. A monarchic line, a dynastic line was considered divinity. It was considered deity. Uh, But David in verse 14, as he caps off his beautiful song and prayer, he caps it off. In verse 14 he says, who am I? In other words, I'm not worthy to have this money. How many times do you read in this passage, everything comes from you. We've only been given what comes from your hand. Look at the humility there. This doesn't belong to me. If there is one person in the Old Testament who earned what he had, it was David. David literally had to fight for everything that he had. He fought against every odd. He fought every enemy. He had to fight inside the kingdom. He fought for his home. He fought for his throne. He lived in caves. He once had nothing. If there was one person that started from the bottom and went all the way, it was David. In a sense, David earned that kingship. He earned the respect of his peers in the process. All the people that worked in his palace, they were the mighty men that he had elevated because they had lived with him in the caves. If there was one person, he had to fight for respect. He earned his kingship, fight for the palace. He developed that army from the ground. He was a general. He was a fighter. He was a warrior. He earned the respect of his people. He earned the respect of his peers. He earned his popularity. It wasn't just given to him. There was no father who was a king that gave it to him. He earned that wealth. And what David basically says is, yes, a lot happened. Yes, he's, I did a lot. Yes, I'm talented. Yes, I grew strong and powerful. I was a general, a warrior. I'm an able king. I'm an able prophet. I'm an able priest. I have the mental and strategic and political capacity and ability. Yes, I have these gifts. Yes, I have these talents. That's not why God chose me. Everything that I have is a gift of God's sheer grace. Can you say that today? Have you say that? When people come to you, if I were to ask, what's this person like? Will they say, this is a person who lives and believes that everything they have is by God's grace alone. We don't give that radically. If you really believe that, you give radically. We don't give that radically. Because we, don't, we believe that we earned it. We believe that we have the talent and the intelligence and the capacity. You can tell because for younger people, you can tell by what they look for in a spouse. They're looking for the intelligence. They're looking for the wealth. They're looking for the status. They're looking for the, uh, the, the, the garments to kind of prove that they have the wealth and the status. They're looking for the jobs and, and, the, and the, the leverage factor, right? The, the upward mobility factor. They want, to look, they want to find somebody who, who doesn't have limits in that regard. We, don't, we believe that we've earned it. We don't believe, secondly, we don't believe that everything we have comes from God. And you can tell because we're not radically generous. We're not. We don't give. David recognized the grace of God in his life. And as a response to that grace, 
He's now reflecting on his life, and he sees what God has done in his life. And David, we know, if you've studied the life of David, he's had very broken moments, moments where there was just extreme darkness in his life. And yet, now he's saying, in retrospect, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I've been given was given by you. And in response, he sacrificially gave everything. He's saying, there's nothing that I would not do for you. There's no place I will not go for you. There's nothing I will not endure for you. First, as a response, the leaders gave. And in verse 6, then in response to the leaders, the people begin to give. And if you think about it, these people give. One person cannot give that much. And so these people are now coming together to do together what one person, even the king, cannot do alone. If you look at their amounts, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. Remember, one talent is about 10 years, 1 to 10 years of a person's wages. That means that these people, the people of God, are investing pretty much part of their national economy. Part of their gross domestic product is being impacted because of the building of this structure, the temple. Because of worship. Because of the poor. Because of right doctrine or teaching being taught in the temple. Why? In verse 9, it says that the leaders, they gave freely and wholeheartedly. They gave because these people gave freely and wholeheartedly. They put their lives into this. They put their hearts into this. This is now the beginning of what David wanted. Now, the word freely in the Hebrew means that these people gave because they were liberated. What that implies is that they were enslaved at some point. And they're saying that we're no longer enslaved. We feel free to give. They were liberated from the grip of what? The grip of wealth and status and power in their lives. Status and greed, reputation, their their security. Why do we hold on to our wallets? Why do we hold so tightly onto uh, our wealth? It's because of self-preservation. Self-preservation no longer had the grip that it once had, no longer had the grip on their souls. The text says they gave freely, they were liberated, and they gave wholeheartedly. In Hebrew, it's kind of a tricky word, the word wholeheartedly. The, we use the uh, New International Version from 1984. That translation <clears throat> The uh, commentators are tr- they're trying to translate this word. It's like they gave shalomly, right? It's not really intended to be a, an adverb there, right? They gave peace-heartedly. And that doesn't do justice here to the word. In other words, it was more than uh, just emotions. It, what it didn't mean is these people are not saying, ah, my life is good. I feel good about things. I'm going to give. That's not what they did. The word shalom is a word that captures, it's like they were fulfilled. They were satisfied. Life was restored. There was a feeling that came from a restoration of the soul that came from a deep surrender to God, only to God. In other words, these people, they were so taken by the love of God, so moved by the grace of God. Is not God faithful in our lives? They were so moved by that truth. Is not God good to us? Has not God shown mercy and grace always and only? They they were so overtaken by that, they started to give. They gave freely. It broke their 
the grip of wealth in their lives, the grip of money in their lives. And they gave shalomly, that peace, that restored sense of the soul. They were so restored. The word fulfillment is what? There's a filling that filled them, a full filling. There was a filling that made their lives full. And they were so filled, it started to overflow and they start to give. That's what happened. So it's definitely more than just emotion. These people, there was a sense of fulfillment, a peace that resulted from a filling in their lives that replaced all the other loves in their heart. Today, most people believe in God. Most people believe in God, they say. But they give their hearts to other things. They find a sense of worth and fulfillment. They want to be filled. They want to experience that sense of filling through other things, other means. And so where, what is this passage telling you? Where you find the sense of worth, that's where you're going to invest. And so these people today, they tend to invest in their homes. Not only hours and effort, but money and wealth. They invest in their future. They, want to, they envision a glorious future. And so they invest tons of money and time into that. And we work and work and work for that future. They invest in their children, right? In an Asian culture, uh, your parents will tell you that you are their strength, that you are the strength that will carry them on. If you do well, they've done well. And so what do they do? They invest in you. It's part of our upbringing. We're brought up to invest in our children, to give everything to them. Because if we invest in them and they succeed, then there will be a filling. That's what we believe. Uh, The Bible says that we are constantly looking to find our sense of worth, a sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, significance in other things. And as a result, we have replaced God with these other things in our soul, in a soulful way, in a deep, deeply rooted soulful way. And as a result, we're constantly at war with God for control over our lives. But when the love of God, when the grace of God overtakes you completely in a way that it satisfies and fills you, the response is, according to this text, what? Surrender. We surrender. There's a peace. The opposite of peace is war. The opposite of war is peace. How do you get peace? You wave the white flag. You say, I surrender. That's how there's peace. Until then, you're at war. And what is war? War is slavery. War is work. War is unrest. War is constant anxiety at the threat and at the risk of death. If you are in control of your life, you will never give. You will never give. Because there's anxiety. Because there's unrest. And that anxiety and unrest, that helplessness that you know is there, it actually results in an arrogance. It shapes you to believe that you can take control and all you need to do is work it off. You will never give that way. You will never give. David says one, everything that I have is by God's sheer grace. And the people respond, and what they say is, if David can give like that, 
If the king can give like that, then I can give. If the king can trust God like that, then I can trust. David's sacrifice, David's gift, broke the power of the grip of money, the grip of greed over these people's hearts, and it helped set them free, and it gave them a peace, and it helped them surrender. And through his giving, the nation became stronger and freer, wholehearted. In fact, David's prayer is what? That my son would have that wholehearted, that shalomly devotion to God. That was the people's response. How do we respond to that? Beginning in verse 19, David pretty much says, I'm not going to build this. I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to endow the work, but I'm not going to build it. My son Solomon is going to build it. David was not going to build this temple. He's just endowing it. He's not going to see it. He's not going to see the end point. God tells David, you're not going to build it. David says, my God is living in a tent, and so I'm going to build him a temple. And God says, no, you're not going to be the one to do this. And explains why. We see this here a little bit. But God says, you have shed so much blood, and you have fought many. Remember, David was a warrior. David was a, was a warrior. He was a general. And so, and so he says, you've shed so much blood, you've fought so many wars, but you will have a son. He will be your prince. You are a man of war, David. But your son, he will be a prince of peace. He is the one that will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father and I will establish a throne of his kingdom over Israel forever and ever. So God is saying, you can't build this temple. You are a man of war, but your son will be a prince of peace, and I will be his father, and he will be my son, and I will establish his throne forever, and he will be the one to build a temple for my name. He will be the one to bring my presence into the people's hearts forever. What does that mean? The temple represents God's presence, God's intimacy, God's closeness, God dwelling and living with his people. But it was also a sign of restoration that God would bring into the world. And that's why in the temple there was mercy. In the temple there was justice. That meant that the temple was a sign. It was a representation that God will bring an end to all the brokenness that we experience in the world today. Not just in our lives. That's the worship part of it. There will be a soulful peace that will be restored in us. But it was more than that. It's the gospel of the kingdom. We see this all the way back from the beginning of God's establishment of the world. We see this extending on even through our sin and in our brokenness. God will bring an end to the brokenness. It was a promise established from the beginning. And that meant an end to poverty, an end to disease, an end to hunger and war and death and sin. And so God has to be central to our lives. The temple represented God to be the center of all of our motivations. God's glory, God's beauty, God's presence, his shalom. And God says, my prince of peace 
will restore everything. My Prince of Peace will re- restore everything that's broken in the world, not just in our lives, in our souls, but in the world. And so the temple wasn't just this building filled with rituals. It was a place of safety and sanctuary. It was a place where the restoration of God would advance. Mercy and justice and teaching. It's why they gave to the poor. It's why they gave alms. It represented a restored earth. And God says, David, you're a man of war. In the future, there's going to be no more war. So the temple, and as a result, my son has to be a sign of peace and justice. My son has to be a representation, a representative, not of taking power, but sharing power. Not of taking power, but giving power. My son has to represent reconciliation and forgiveness. And so I want your son, who will be my son, to be a prince of peace who will build it. God turns David down. And he says, my son will build this. He will be my son. Was he talking about Solomon? Solomon was David's biological son. Was he talking about Solomon? Solomon's throne couldn't have because Solomon's throne didn't last forever. Was he talking about this dynasty, David's dynasty? Because the line really, in a sense, didn't last forever, not physically. Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, but during his reign, the country actually split because the northern part rebelled so much and they established their own king. So Israel got broken up. The kingdom was torn down, torn apart. Later on, the temple itself that Solomon had built was destroyed, never ever restored physically to its same beauty and glory. In fact, later on, they tried to rebuild this temple. It takes so much longer than the first temple, but it was so much small. There was actually a person who lived to see both temples, and they said that when they saw the second temple, he wept because it was so small compared to the first. He literally looked at it, and he cried. That's what he said. It was never restored to the same beauty. It was never restored to the same glory that David envisioned, that Solomon had built. And that's sad because it represented God's presence, access. That's what it's all about, friends, access. That's why we work so hard for approval. That's why we work so hard for intimacy. We're not just talking about marriages. That's why we so, we're so desperate to get in with people. Because we think if we can get in with them, it represents for us that cosmic sense of finally being allowed in through the door. If you read that quote in your call to worship, that's what C.S. Lewis is talking about. That there's this door, and you finally can get in that door. And there's a sense of access that you receive that we so desperately, we didn't even know that that longing existed, but we so desperately want to get in that door. And finally, the temple represented that door. You can get in. You can finally get that peace and that access. That's what it's all about. When you don't have it, you're torn. When you don't have it, you're broken. When you don't have it, you're lost. When you don't have it, you feel forgotten. When you don't have it, there's this barrier that exists between you and and just life itself. Things are disoriented. 
The temple represented God's acceptance. What's the root of acceptance? Access. God's access. God's love, his mercy and grace. It's what we really want. It's why we, we really need. It's why we're working so hard. It's why we battle God because we try to find it in other ways. We are such works-oriented people. We think the way in is through our works. We're trying so hard. And it was never about works. It was never about getting God's approval by doing things to win his love. And so because we don't feel that access by doing it, we put that work into other things. The approval of our boss, our spouse, even our children. It's an upside-down generation. The approval of our children became more important than justice, than teaching the child justice, teaching the child to, be, to have courage. And so we're developing a generation of weak children because we so desperately need their love, and that's what they see. It's, in, it's, it's bred into them, practically. Trust me, I run a camp for children. I'm kind of an authority, right? C.S. Lewis says, when you get God's approval, when you get God's love, when you experience his grace, his mercy, that door that you've been knocking on all your lives finally swings open and you're in. That's what the temple represents. If you try to obey, there are a lot of people here who are inquiring on what it means to know God. And if you do it just by obeying, oh, I, just, I gotta just try to believe. But God is remote in your life. There's no access. Everything you're doing is futile because the door is still closed. God tells David, my prince of peace will unlock that door, essentially, and bring my presence to your people forever, forever access. Solomon was a son. He was not the son. So who was? Centuries later, Jesus Christ is being baptized by John the Baptist. The heavens open up. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. Peace. And God says what? This is my son. And Jesus Christ doesn't just build the temple. He is the temple. In John chapter 2, you have these money changers and people with animals. They're in the temple. They're crowding the temple. Whole other sermon. We're going to go into that, right? Jesus chases them out. He chases out the money changers, chases out the sellers, the merchants. And they, the religious leaders, they come to him, they say, on whose authority are you doing this? Jesus says what? Tear down this temple. I will rebuild it in three days. But the author of the gospel, according to John, he, he puts in a little footnote there at the end. Right? It's not a real footnote. He actually writes it into the text. And he says the temple that he was speaking of was his body. Jesus Christ's body is the temple. Jacob, in the Old Testament, if you've ever read the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Jacob, he's poor, he's penniless, he's got no friends, he's kind of run away from his family, he's, he's lost, he's homeless, he's lying on the ground, he's got nothing but a rock as a pillow, and he's lying on the ground, there he has a dream, and in that dream there's a ramp, a giant ramp that leads all the way up, a giant stairwell that leads all the way up to heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ says, well, what, what Jacob sees are the angels of God. 
up and down that ramp. Jesus says, you will see the angels ascend and descend on me. That ramp that Jacob sees is the temple. Reaching up to heaven, access. And Jesus says, I am that ramp. I am the way. I am the link. I am the bridge. I am the gate. Use any metaphor. I am access to God. I am the way. Heaven and earth intersect and meet through me. I am the bridge. I am the door. I am the access that you've been looking for all your life. And so Jesus Christ was born in the line of David. David was born in the line of Judah, the line of kings. Jesus was born in the line of David, so he's a king. Jesus taught in the synagogues. He's a teacher. He's a prophet. He rebuked the Pharisees. He accepted the prostitutes. There he is just, and at the same time, he is good, and he is faithful, and there he's a for- he, he grants forgiveness and pardon. You see this. He's a prophet. In him, there's prophecy and mercy and justice. There's access in him. You have acceptance in him. In Jesus Christ, we have access. So Jesus is the ultimate temple. He is the bridge. Second Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, for, we know the gra- for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. David says, I'm going to give everything. I'm going to give my life work. I'm going to give my treasury and my net worth to build the temple of God, to bring the access of God, to bring the presence of God to my people. On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, you are my center of motivation. Everything I do is for you. I and the Father are one. The Father is in me. I in him. We are one. And yet on the cross, he says, I have been forsaken. In other words, I've been torn apart from the Father. I've been torn apart from the Father who is my center. And because he is my peace and he's been torn from me, now the wrath of the king, the wrath of God is being poured out on me for the penalty of my people's sins. And so now my body and my soul are at war with God. I've been forsaken. And so I'm lost. I'm disoriented. I have unrest, no peace, no shalom, no access. Forsaken. My body's been torn. I'm broken. There's a barrier now between me and God. But Jesus continues to trust God. I'm forsaken, but he still says, my God, my God. David gave everything he had. Jesus Christ, a far greater king than David, a far greater David, gives everything that he has. He had far greater wealth, ruled with greater justice, far greater integrity, wealthier, more powerful than any king in the world. Why did he lose access? Jesus Christ lost access to the Father so we could have access to the Father. Jesus Christ was pushed out so that we could be brought in. Jesus Christ gave everything to the poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. You know what that means? The people, they looked at, you know, they said, if David can trust God, if David could give everything he had, if David could give up his life work, then we can give everything we've got. We can trust God. David was a king. If the king can do that, we can do that. 
That means that the sacrifice and the generosity of Israel's king David moved them into generosity so that they would become free and they would have shalomly give. Then what can an infinitely greater king, an infinite greater generosity of our king do for us? It will shape your life. It will shape your soul. It will change forever your approach to God. Now you have access. It's going to change the way you have access to God. Before it was about works. Now it's about God's grace alone. David says, everything I have is yours. Everything that I have has been given to me by you. Jesus Christ gave an infinite cost to himself, poured himself out to pay my debt. I'm debt free. I'm free. Secondly, it changes your view of yourself. Your accomplishment, your view of your accomplishments, your view of it kills the arrogance. It's the end of pride, friends. Once you get the gospel, you know what you're worth. You no longer have to work to earn approval. You no longer have to work to earn validation. You no longer have to work to earn people's acceptance. You no longer have to work to maintain these relationships, to stay in, to feel in, because you're in, in the most cosmic way, by the king of the universe. And if that love becomes yours, it will fill your heart. It will overflow your heart. You can give love. You can demonstrate grace. You will be a person of justice. You will be a person of righteousness. You will be a person of grace. You will be a person of reconciliation. You will become a person of forgiveness. You will be a person that will advance God's kingdom to restore the earth because you become the link and the bridge to God for other people out there. Why do we give? We give when you give people otherwise would never get the opportunity to experience this access now can experience it and you become through that giving a visible sign of the presence of God in the world you become the temple of God are you no more for what you have than your love for Christ than your worship than your humility are you no more for what you do, then your love for Jesus, then your humility, then your generosity, then your kindness. That's why we're anxious, friends. That's why we're depressed. It's the most anxious and depressed generation. Scholars are saying this generation is marked by greater anxiety and depression than the history of the world. That's why we're so jealous, because we're still at war with God. You think you're jealous of somebody else. You think you're angry because of what you're entitled to and what you deserve. You're at war with God for control over your life. You're a stingy king. David gave everything he, he had, and he's a king. Jesus Christ, the greater David, gave everything he had, and he is the greatest king. And when you behold the beauty of Jesus and see everything that he had and everything he deserved for you, he becomes even more beautiful you will want more of him. You will trust him. You will make him yours. Let the true Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, let his peace be given to you, receive it in a way that transcends all understanding, shape you to become a temple of God. Let's pray together.